Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight's topic is get ready for your foal. Well, nearly 11 months have passed and your foal is due any day. Are you excited yet? I've only bred two foals over the years and the last baby is now 15 years old and waiting outside for his dinner. So it's been a while for me. But breeding and raising a healthy foal is one of the most rewarding and stressful horse owner experiences you can have. So many things can also go wrong from difficult births, known as dystocia, to sick mares or foals. We could use some help. To answer your questions and help ensure your foal arrives safely, we are joined by Dr. Michelle Linton, who is an internal medicine and emergency critical care clinician at University of Pennsylvania's New Bolton Center. She currently devotes most of her clinical time to the care of pregnant mares, sick foals, and critically ill patients. In addition to seeing a high caseload of sick neonates and high-risk pregnancies, she also runs New Bolton's Healthy Mayor Foaling Program. Dr. Linton, welcome and thank you for joining us. Hi, good evening. Good evening to everyone. Thank you for having me uh, tonight. I'm glad it sounds like we have a, a lot of listeners out there, so thank you for joining. Yep. And. Um, Dun, can you tell us a little bit about your interest and how you got interested specifically in uh, these mares, foaling, and the neonates? Yeah, um, I mean, I've always been interested in, in horses regardless, um, but the mare and foal side of it kind of came on. I just had this kind of natural kind of inclination. I did work on, uh, before becoming a veterinarian, I did work on a large uh, broodmare farm for a while and so um, I was exposed to them for quite some time you know from a younger age I was intrigued by you know watching these foals outside um, I myself um, as a newborn was uh, in a neonatal intensive care unit so I don't know if there was some connection to that um, that I've had you know from from being a sick baby myself I was premature when I was born so you know it, it's kind of I feel like I almost have this bit of con a connection to some of the sick babies I, I deal with so it was just something that came naturally to me um, it's not something that for everyone um, it's a lot of time and effort that goes into it but it just mm -hmm. I just found this natural connection um, to them yeah definitely makes for a busy springtime for vets who are specializing in that area so thank you because i know that we're, you're in the middle of a busy foaling season and thank you for taking even an hour away i know it can be difficult on these evenings with uh, mares foaling uh, let's go ahead and do a quick review of our ask the horse live uh, format for everyone who's listening we're going to be starting with the questions that people submitted during registration uh, if you have questions that you'd ask to like to ask during our live broadcast or you would like clarification or to follow up on one of Dr. Linton's responses you can enter that in the chat window in front of you if you've joined us via your web browser we're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible so with that we're going to go ahead and get started our first question Dr. Linton is from Susan in Georgia and she wants to know do many horses have any special precautions different than normal size horses that she should prepare for? Yeah, it's a good question. And I say typically not. There are some things, however, to look out for with um, with minis. So um, some people think that dystocias or difficult births might be higher, um, but you know the foals are also much smaller too. So they're usually in proportion to what the mare can carry. But we do see some dystocias in that breed. Um, they're not, you know, they're not, 
so much different in terms of how they fall. They still go through that same routine, the same kind of pregnancy issues potentially. Um, and the falls actually, interestingly, um, are a little, little more kind of robust when they're born. And sometimes, you know, we have these uh, guidelines from when, uh, say, a thoroughbred or a warm blood or a standard bred foal should be up and nursing. Uh, often these pony foals or even in, even the mini foals will be up and nursing um, in much shorter time frames. So, uh, as you know, a thoroughbred or standard bred foal might be still kind of staggering around um, the stall in in an hour. Some of these mini foals are up galloping around their mares in an hour. So, um, so that's a good difference. Um, but something to keep an eye out on. Um, we do see some congenital abnormalities that do occur a little bit higher frequency in, in, in mini horses, um, just because of the way they're bred, um, not necessarily anything bad that's been done, um, but you know, they're miniatures. So um, they can, uh, uh, some of the genes and things that have been passed on, there can be some congenital abnormalities that we keep an eye out for. So, um, and that can, there's a whole broad range of those things, anything from congenital heart defects um, that may not be apparent straight away, um, to limb abnormalities and things. Some that are quite obvious, um, but others that may not be um, obvious straight away. Um, they're not all life-threatening, um, but just something to keep in mind, um, you know, for those mini owners, um, you know, the congenital abnormalities can occur a little bit more frequently in, in those guys. Okay. So you've mentioned dystocias. Can you explain to us what a constitutes a dystocia in a mare when she's falling? Yeah, and it's, a, it's another great question. So by definition, dystocia just means difficult birth. So um, in the mare, it can occur for a variety of reasons. And we kind of, we group those reasons into different areas once we define what's going on. Um, and so it can be caused majority of time in the mare, it's due to something, the position or presentation or the posture of the fall. It's less common that it's the foal's too big to get out. Um, we see that more in um, in cows, that the, you know, the calves are just too big. Um, but in most commonly in the foal, um, there's not so much that maternal and fetal disproportion, um, that, and that's kind of the size of the foal compared to the mare. Uh, less commonly it's due to that, uh, more commonly it's due to the foal, it's got its leg back, or it's got its leg over its head, or the neck's twisted or it's, you know, that they should come out um, anterior, which means head first with both front legs extended. Um, and they make that final rotation uh, in that late stage of, of delivery. And some of them don't make that final rotation just because, you know, if it's the first time fallus, you know, the pelvis might be a little narrower in a younger mare, um, that it, things might get a little uh, bit hard. Um, they can come out backwards um, but by the tail first. So, there are a lot of different reasons why a dystocia may occur in a mare, but usually it's something to do with um, the position of the foal in that uterus. And so with that in mind, we do have a question later on about a normal foaling, but let's go ahead and talk about that now. Can you describe what you should expect during a normal foaling? Yeah, and that's something that I can't talk enough about, particularly to my students here, um, is you have to know the normals um, before you can pick anything that's abnormal. So um, the first thing, my first tip is always, it's always exciting and it's always fun, um, you know, in the normal ones. Um, basically, and some mares do it very differently. Um, we divide usually falling up into three stages. Um, so a first stage, um, the first stage is those initial uterine contractions where the mare gets restless, 
may get a little sweaty. However, some mares do not show any signs at all. Um, you can be sitting and staring at them and they're just standing there and suddenly they break water and they're falling. So um, stage one can go on for hours. Sometimes um, in the younger mare that's not sure about that, you know, that crampiness inside, she's a little bit more anxious about what might be happening. And so those, those can go on for a little bit longer. Um, sometimes some mares go into stage one uh, and then they'll settle down for a little bit. So they'll get a restless and calm down, go back to eating and you think, oh, it's a false alarm. And then they'll start stage one again. So it can come and go a little bit. Um, and, and it can be very variable. It can be from a mare that normally she stands in one position in a stall to eat or something, or and tonight she's standing in a different location. So it can be very variable. Um, stage two is actually the birth of the foal. So that's when the water breaks, and that, that's actually what we technically refer to as the rupture of the choreoallantoas. So that's when that, um, that fetal membrane actually breaks open to let the foal out. And what happens with that is there's more forceful uterine contractions that cause that foal to then break through um, those, those fetal membranes. Um, and they should rupture nicely. And the first thing you usually see as that ruptures um, is a nice white, what we call, some people will say, oh, we see the bag, the white bag. And that's actually um, the amnion. The foals contained in two kind of sacs. Um, the, the immediate sac around the foal is this very, very paper thin, um, and it's fairly, it should be normally transparent. And it's this white kind of transparent sac that the foal is in. And then the outer sac is the choreoallantoas, and that's the thing that breaks um, to let the water out for when the foal comes out. So the first thing you will see is that little bit of white bag that comes out. And then just behind that should be two front feet. Um, uh, and then sitting on top of those should be uh, the foal's nose. And the mare may get up and down. And this is when the foal makes that final rotation. Um, so they may be slightly on their side and you'll watch the mare get up and down. And I think partly with what the mare does, um, you'll see her get up and down on one side and then get up and down on the other side. And I think she actually helps position that foal and helps that final rotation go to go along. So we always need to make sure that those mares had plenty of space. Um, if they're in a stall, plenty of space to move around and do that and be comfortable um, and, and feel like that they can do that. And they will get up and down. Occasionally a mare will fall standing up, but that, that, you know, that's not the common, most common way they do it. Um, and then, so that that time frame for that that fall should be out. That you know, majority of time within 20 minutes. Sometimes they're out in 10 minutes. Um, in 30 minutes is my upper limit for when that fall should come out. If if you're getting to the 25 minute stage and you've still only got those little two front feet there, then something's probably not going right. That you know, someone should be um, addressing that. And then the third of the three stages um, is actually after the delivery of the foal. So the third stage is actually that mare passing that placenta at the end. Um, and that should happen. Typically, it happens 20, 20 minutes to an hour. Um, but anywhere up to three hours um, is okay for a mare for stage three. We have a question from our live audience that follows up on that. Pam wants to know what are some causes of the bag not breaking during foaling? Yeah, excellent question. So um, so if, if, if a couple of different reasons. If, um, if the foal is coming out um, kind of tail first, sometimes there won't be that propulsion necessarily to break that bag, but that's not so common. The most common reason that I see, and this is typically what we see is the red bag. So that red bag that you see is actually that choreoallantoas and that 
those fetal membranes that haven't ruptured to let the foal out, they're actually all coming out at once because it, it, it's not rupturing to let that foal out. So that's that nice red velvety side of the placenta that actually butts up against the mare's uterus. Um, and when that area is thickened or edematous, um, the foal can't get through it. So a thickened or edematous um, chorioallantoas, um, which is you know, the technical word for that, that fetal membrane and that placenta, um, can be caused by an ascending infection. Um, placentitis is most, the most common reason why that doesn't rupture. So you mentioned the red bag, so that's something mm -hmm. we, we don't want to see. What are the repercussions of having a foal born with a red bag and what is how should the horse owner or the manager, breeding manager respond in those situations? Yeah. It's a nerve wracking time if you see that red bag coming out because something needs to be done pretty quick. Um, it could just be an indication that um, that you know, the tip right there where the cervical star should break um, and that just hasn't broken and that's just tearing away and it's coming with the foal. Um, but it could be an indication that the whole placenta and all that fetal membranes around the foal is letting go. And once that happens, that foal has no oxygen supply. So we don't, you don't know which one of those things are happening. If the rest of the placenta is still attached and it's just that tip that's, you know, that's not rupturing or um, or if everything's letting go. Um, and so really uh, the only thing to do is rupture those. Um, and you might think it's easy to stick your finger through oh, it. It's not. Dr. Linton, can yeah. I interrupt really quickly? We lost you for a second there. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm going to have you back up and, and re-explain that you just explained. And then I also want to let you know that if you do get dropped and need to rejoin us, you can just call that number that you have that okay. you used to join us. So so if you do disappear and, and it's obvious, you can just call call right back into the call and we'll wait for you. In, okay. in the meantime, so let's back up. What do we do? The red bag, the foal is uh, born. What is the, the response? Yeah, so I mean, if you caught the part where I was saying that um, it, it can be an indication that the whole placenta is letting go, and if that's the case, um, then the foal is going to be really starved of oxygen. Um, if that foal is not out and the nose is not out and it's not, you know, it can't breathe. Um, and so really we need to break that uh, membrane down. Um, you have to have a trained eye to know what that is the right membrane is because you don't want to be you know, cutting through something that you shouldn't be. Um, and so sometimes the wall of the mare's vagina can kind of pooch out a little bit as she's straining. Um, and you don't want to mistake that obviously for a red bag. So um, definitely be, if, if you're, you know, in the falling situation, be familiar with what a particular, what a red bag may look like. Um, what we tend to do is if we see the red bag, I poke something through it. It's not easy. And if they're thickened, then it's not easy even just to put your finger through it. So I just usually have some blunt scissors or something to, um, you know, not open scissors or anything that could cut the fall, um, but just something uh, a little pointy to poke through it. And once you can create a little hole, you can kind of break it open. And then, you know, and then from that point, um, I try and hasten the falling a little bit quicker, um, just in case that fall is getting starved of oxygen, you know, at least to the point where it's got its head out and, um, and can breathe. Um, so we're going to back up now to before foaling, now that we have an idea of what a normal foaling looks like and some things that can possibly go wrong. We have a question that we receive via email from Laura, and she says that she had just has just taken in several pregnant mares that have a body score between two and three. They're pre presently feeding the 
courses, a diet of alfalfa per the UC Davis starvation nutrition protocol. All the mares are in their last trimester. What is the probability of their creating colostrum when they foal sufficiently uh, for to feed their foals, uh, also milk for their neonates? And they are presently feeding up to 28 pounds per day of alfalfa to increase and increasing the poundage of alfalfa every week. So what do you do with a, a neglected, starved broodmare? Yeah, these are these are really tough cases because a mare that's in their kind of last trimester of gestation, um, it's really hard to even get weight on. So I, you know, you're not gonna get weight on these mares. Um, you know, body condition on these mares. So don't fret about that if you don't think these mares are gaining weight themselves. Um, they're putting everything that you're giving them now into those babies. Um, and so, and, and into making colostrum and milk. So, um, you know, I think you're, you know, the fact that they're getting a better and improving plan of nutrition right now, and it depends a little bit how far into their last trimester they are. But now that they're on that you know, increasing level of nutrition, I think you're going to have a good chance of them developing colostrum um, and being able to feed these foals. What you won't see is the mares themselves um, putting on weight until after they're beyond that peak of lactation. Lactation is such an energy demand um, that those mares, are in, they themselves right now are invested in these babies and their priority are putting the, everything into this foal that they can um, and putting everything into that lactation. What you may end up seeing in these mares is actually they may hold, uh, they may, their um, pregnancies may go on a little longer than what you may expect, uh, just because if they've been a little behind, then the nutrition of the baby's been behind. So they'll actually, may actually hold on to these babies longer because um, their foal might be a little bit behind developmentally. So that's something to, you know, keep an eye on um, for sure. Okay. We have a question from Jane in British Columbia, Canada, and she wants to know when the best time to remove a cast is. And can you explain what the cast is? Yeah, so for those of you that aren't familiar, the cast is where we actually um, suture up the vulva um, to the point um, to the point where the mare isn't able to aspirate extra air um, and has got less chance of having an ascending infection. So usually it's placed after breeding. Um, uh, and after that mare's deemed to be pregnant. Um, uh, depending on the situation, some mares will place them earlier if they've had a previous uh, infection or they're prone to getting infections. So um, the Kaslik is just basically a, a very minor procedure that you do in the mare that basically closes up that vulva a little bit. Um, and the confirmation of the mare may indicate that she may need, some mares don't need them. Um, but the, the, to answer the question as to when to remove it, uh, it differs a little bit if you're dealing with a normal mare that's never had a, you know, a placentitis before, um, and that's where they get the infection. That most commonly um, it gets in through the through the vagina and then in, infects the um, uh, the uh, fetal membranes in the placenta that way. Um, and so, if you've had a mare that that's been a problem before, I leave them in as long as possible. But for mares, you've got to be watching them. Um, they will fall through a caslix, but um, they will tear um, in a lot of different ways, and that can be very problematic. Um, in a normal mare, I say, uh, you know, 10 days to two weeks before, you know, they're due, or if they're starting, if, and you know, the due date in the mare is such a broad term, as we all know, they can fall anywhere from 
330 days, 350 days, 340 days. Um, and so it's hard to know based on just an exact date when to take that out. So my my usual approach to it, um, if you know people are watching them, have good monitoring, once they're starting to get a decent, you know, some other development, um, is it is around the time to take that Catholics out. Um, you know, most of the time a mare will majority of the time they'll develop an udder for foaling. Um, but if you're not sure, two weeks before their due date is a good rule of thumb to use. But always, you know, be checking their udders very closely. That because that is um the udder to us is the best indicator of what's going on inside that mare. Okay. We have a question from Ellen in Idaho, and she wants to know what methods or equipment you recommend for modern monitoring mares to detect or pre predict foaling. Yeah, the best thing is a good set of eyes for sure. Um, but obviously, you know, in a lot of situations, um, you don't, you know, having someone sitting in your barn all night isn't, you know, or you don't want to be getting up and down every 15 minutes to be checking them. So there's a lot, there are a lot of pieces of equipment out there, um, different falling alarms. So the old falling alarms used to be um, those indicators that used to kind of attach to a mare's halter. So if she laid down, if she was falling, the, the change in um, orientation of that alarm would set the alarm off. However, there's a lot of false alarms and I see some mares that don't go into lateral to fall and so you may miss it based on that. Um, the alarms um, that I like right now, um, are those fall alert alarms are the ones that you actually suture into the vulva. Um, and there, it's a magnet that goes from one side to the vulva into this little um, cartridge. And once something's coming through that vulva, that magnet will pull out and trigger the alarm. Um, and the alarm, you know, the, the alarm, I've got mine set up to then phone an auto dialer, which comes with the alarm package that will then automatically call my phone. That's good in normal mares. Um, in a mare that's had a dystocia before, because those alarms will trigger when there's a feet coming through uh, that vulva. So when there's something physically coming through that vulva. So you'll miss stage one, you'll miss the actual breaking of the water, um, and just after breaking of the water, and particularly in mares that have had a dystocia or a difficult birth before, that's my time for checking the, where, how that fall is in, in there. Legs, we have two legs, we have a nose, because that's the time when you want to make the manipulations to correct that. So for everyone, you know, falling mares in their backyard that have fallen in their backyard before, but just want to have a peaceful night's sleep, those fall alerts are really, really great. Um, I don't know, I've seen maybe one mare that somehow managed to fall through it or for whatever reason the alarm didn't go off, but they're very, very good to alert you that, hey, there's something coming out of this mare. Um, so those are really good. Um, there are a lot of cameras now um, that you can put up in your barns that don't, you know, aren't necessarily very expensive, um, but they do require you to look at your camera, but it doesn't, it means you don't physically have to go out to the barn um, on a, you know, snowy night or an icy night or anything. You can stay inside and, you know, those, those cameras come direct, you know, you can set them up to come to your phone. Or, or to a computer monitor in your house. And so they're easy to check from your house or have them on check-in on them. So I have those set up as well um, as a, you know, an initial if, you know, someone calls them to say, hey, this mare's restless, I can look at the camera. Um, or if I'm just wondering what the mare's doing, I can look at the camera and then decide if I need to go and check them. Do you find that it's less stressful for the mares to have cameras or a full mm -hmm. alert rather than having someone go in and check them frequently throughout the night? Without a doubt. Yeah, the cameras, uh, mares, you know, on all horses, as everyone, they're so 
you know, they're flight animals, so they're very receptive to the environment and they're exhausted because, you know, they're heavily pregnant. Um, some of them don't lay down because it's uncomfortable for them to lay down and they need to lay down to sleep. So some of them are a bit sleep deprived and having someone go in, turn a light on and go in and out every half an hour or every hour or even every two hours really will disturb them or even if someone walking past their stall. Um, we find camera monitors um, much better for just the hourly check or the every half an hour check just to look at the camera Sure, if the mare's laying down, you want to go and have a look to see what's going on. Um, but just for routine checking, I don't disturb them as much as I can. I think they need their rest. You don't want to put them off whatever they're doing. Um, so without a doubt, the cameras are, you know, they're great. But you want to make sure that someone doesn't look at the camera and just think a mare is sleeping because they can be sneaky about trying to get these foals out sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm. Uh, we have a follow-up question from Kelsey in our live audience. She'd like to know when is the right time to have the foal alert placed in the mare? Yeah, so too far out, um, the foal alerts get really messy and they can actually, the sutures that are in the vulva can actually pull through and just makes the little, things a little bit messy back there. So what I tend to do, I wait until they've got um, some udder development. So not when they're just starting to get a little bit of udder edema and an udder, full, uh, udder fill, uh, but when that udder has got a decent moderate size to it. So um, again, usually about a week before when you think you know, their due date might be, um, but you want to make sure, you know, I wouldn't be putting it, putting one in when the mare has no udder, um, but if she has not much of an udder and she's getting close to what you think around her due date ranges, you might want to pop one in because occasionally we'll see mares that develop an udder more just after they fall. So um, it's really, really, in, it's really dependent on an individual. Um, and in a lot of cases, I just, would say talk to your vet, um, particularly if it's a mare that's fall before, based on when they've been due. Um, but if you put them in too early, sometimes those the sutures can pull through, um, and they kind of get a little dirty back there. So um, you know, you'll try and hold off. But you, and again, using the udder as a good indicator is always useful. We have a question from Carol in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and she wants to know if it's better to let a mare foal in a pasture or to have her foal in a stall. And so I'm actually glad this question came up because um, I've had the best of both worlds. So I'm, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm from Australia and majority mm -hmm. of our mares, um, even on large farms, um, will fall in little falling paddocks. So they're basically, they're, they're small fields. They're, um, you know, they're not large by any means and they'll have lights on them and they can be seen and, you know, you kind of create more natural environment. Um, and some people say that, it may be cleaner uh, doing it that way. Uh, it depends obviously on the situation. Um, so it depends on the pasture you have. A mare will go and find a quiet place. So she will wanna go, if she's in a large field, that's got some wooded area, she's gonna go and hide back in the woods and try and hide away from everyone. Cause that's what they want. They wanna try and get away from everything um, if they can uh, in that situation. Cause they don't wanna follow in, uh, out in the middle of you know, the open, um, just, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, so, you know, it depends on the situation. It depends on the climate and the weather that you have at the time. If it's really muddy, if it's icy, if it's, you know, snowing, these folks come out, you know, it, you know, I don't know, people walk outside, you know, the other morning I walked outside after I'd washed my hair and my hair just froze, you know, these folks out come out 
come out wet. So mm-hmm. you don't want really freezing conditions on these babies and it really slippery that they're going to then fight for standing up if it's really snowy and things. So um, there are different scenarios where pasture falling is going to be better over stall falling. I say if you're falling in a stall, make sure it's on a good non-slip floor so that they can get it up and down comfortably and they'll they'll feel comfortable about getting up and down. I see some mares that know that floor is slippery so they won't get up and down and they'll have a bit more trouble falling. Um, make sure it's a very good sized stall. Uh, you know, that you want them to move around. You want them to help that fall to get positioned. Um, but make sure it's a clean stall. So you don't want to have one, if you're falling out a bunch of mares, you don't want to be um, running a bunch of mares through the same stall over and over again without having it disinfected in between because um, falling can be messy. So I think there is time and place for pasture and small pasture, you know, not a huge open area. It's, you know, a small pasture falling um, is, is better than a stall, but there are definitely times where a stall is better than a pasture. It just really depends on your situation. We have a question from Pamela in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and she wants to know if you do have your mare full in a stall, what is the best bedding? Uh, straw, sawdust, wood, wood shavings? What do you recommend? Yeah, I think um, sawdust, if anything, I mean, it sticks to everything, so uh, and everything that's wet. Uh, so that's, you know, the, the main thing with sawdust. But um, in terms of whatever it is should be, you know, good quality and low dust. So there are some really dust, there's some really dusty um, even uh, sawdust out there. So you don't want, you know, that, and that the, the dust in those, those kind of products um, have a lot of uh, fungus and you know even though you, you're not sure you don't you're not aware that that's there or dusty straw or anything um, exposing those newborn lungs to those kind of pathogens is not uh, is not a great idea so here um, at New Bolton Center you know I fall out on straw um, it's easy it absorbs things very well it's easy to pick up and clean afterwards um, you lump it all together but we're also in um, for those of you not from this area in Kennett Square which is the mushroom capital of the world so um, the mushroom farms in this area, um, a lot of our straw goes to their compost. So um, that's why we use a lot of straw here for our bedding. So I've definitely fold on a lot of different um, uh, beddings. Um, I like straw, but it can be slippery once that that fold comes out, the straw kind of slips out from under them. So again, it comes down to depending on the flooring that you have under there. Um, but you know, this Sawdust, um, I try not to do it too much on wood chips, depending on the wood chips, it can, they can be a little harsh. Um, but, you know, whatever the, my main thing is, whatever the mare is comfortable, already comfortable on. So if you've had a mare bedded on straw, and then you decide you want to fall on sawdust because you think that might be better, I would introduce that sawdust to the mare weeks before that so she's used to it. Um, you don't want to have a mare that is, Better, normally better on sawdust is suddenly going to straw because she's just going to think she's going to eat all her straw mm-hmm. um, and not be as familiar or comfortable about laying down. So they both have their pluses and minuses. Sawdust, I think, kind of um, sticks to the wet fall a lot more. Uh, but when that fall dries off, it's not much of a big deal. Um, but, you know, I fall on straw here because of what we have and what we use. But it, it can tend to get a little slippery. Um, and sometimes it's really dusty. So if it's straw, very you know, good quality straw. Um, and again, it depends on the footing that you have under that. Dr. Linton, do you have a preference on stall size for folding? Yeah, that's a uh, good question. It depends if you're talking uh, meters. Um, uh, you know, it 
10 by 12 stall, I, I, I think it depends on the mare size. Some, you know, smaller mares will fall on, you know, be able to fall in smaller stalls. To me, um, I like to, you know, it should be for me, I like having twice the length of the mare. So basically a mare should be able to stand in a stall from her tail to head from one end and then be able to, you'd be able to double that length. And so that gives them a chance that if they get down, they've got room to put their legs out. So that, to me, is a good gauge when I'm eyeballing. And this is not, you know, a, a rule that's necessarily out there. But when I'm eyeballing a mare, working out the size stall that's going to be ideal, because we have a variety of size stalls here, um, you know, I like to see that the mare from her tail to head it reaches halfway across the stall, and then she's got that distance again. Obviously, in some condition, in some situations, that is not possible because you know you can't have stalls that are that large all the time mm -hmm. um but i like that kind of that rule of thumb or at least one and a half length of the mare um because that'll give her a chance to walk around get up get down again um so that's kind of you know the length is that kind of what i would base it off yeah okay. uh, you already have mentioned uh snow and cold weather but we have a question from gala in north dakota which gets very, very cold. And she wants to know, how do you best prepare for a foal being born in the cold of winter? Yeah, so I think it, and I think the main thing is nutrition of the mare. Um, and, you know, coming where I came from in Australia, it wasn't nearly as cold as it got over here. And I was amazed how fluffy bulls are born here. So they're prepared. They get prepared for this environment. Um, I think the main thing is um, having an area it's not so much just the temperature, but often it's the wind chill factor that will get them. So being wet and out in a cold environment without wind isn't a big deal, and they'll dry off pretty quickly. Um, but being in an area that's got a, you know, that doesn't have a little a wind break through it is is you know not an ideal situation. That's when that you know the foal um, will dry by evaporation, and so you'll take a lot of extra heat with it from that foal. Um, so my biggest thing is if that mare is adapted to that environment, things should go fine. You know, mares fall out in the wild all the time and they're totally fine even in the cold. So if the mare is adapted to that weather, the foal will also have been adapted to that, um, even though they they come out. And shivering is not necessarily saying they're cold. That's the way of the foal warming up. So that shivering is not saying, hey, this foal's freezing. I need to go and take it in my house and put it in front of the fire. Um, if the fall is otherwise acting normally, um, you know, if shivering is actually a good sign that that fall is thermoregulating and it's trying to warm itself up. Um, so if the fall is otherwise active, so my biggest tip is making sure that that mare was prepared to start with. She's in good body condition um, and that, you know, if you're falling outside, making sure there's a, a, a wall or a bar or something, some kind of windbreak outside there. Um, making sure they're monitored, making sure that foal has nursed and doing all the normal things. Um, but having a, a barn for it to prepare, you know, we all have these, this, you know, crazy weather that's been happening um, over the, basically over the, over the globe these days with mm -hmm. surprise storms. Um, so, you know, having a, a big stall available to, to fall in or bring them into, um, you know, to encourage that bonding if, if that's, you know, if that's an issue. We have a question from Lauren in Kansas. She has a mare that's older and hasn't foaled before. She wants to know what she can do to help things go smoothly for the mare and her first foal. Yeah, so that mare is facing the same issues that it is even a young 
Vermeer would have with having her first fall. She's not sure about what's happening. Um, she's got these, you know, rumblings going on in her abdomen that she's not sure what, what that, that, that is from. But let her trust her, home, her hormones. So, you know, that maternal uh, instinct will majority of times kick in. But an older mare, um, nutrition, I can't speak more about nutrition, good nutrition in these older mares, um, making sure that her... You know, dental care is well up to date that, you know, even though you're feeding her, that she's not dropping that all over the ground. Um, so nutrition, appropriate nutrition, dental, general health care, vaccinations. Um, older mares can be more prone to uh, the main thing that, you know, that I warn people about. Um, is only, And it's only because I see it because uh, of who I am and where I am, um, is the mare, older mares have a bit more higher risk of bleeding um, and it may not be a major bleed but they can get hematomas it can be a little uncomfortable for them uh, but you know as they age those um, their blood vessels and we know that their blood vessels are not as elastic as they used to be um, and so they're not as easily they don't expand very as much and they don't contract down as well and so the pressures of that kind of you know the uterus is very demanding for that blood supply so they do have a slightly um, higher risk of having a bleed so and that can occur before falling during falling and after so if anything low stress environment um keep everything you know i wouldn't go changing her environment too quickly keep everything low stress for as much as possible um general health care is really ideal making sure her body condition is good um and taking you know making sure she's producing adequate milk um sometimes older mares um have uh you know milk production and lactation and letdown, um, a lot of those signals come from the brain. So there's a gland in the brain, the pituitary gland that can be in older horses um, responsible for things like Cushing's disease. And those mares have trouble lactating. So keep an eye on her milk production because sometimes you, you know, supplementing full with, you know, specific milk pellets and full pellets may be something that you need to do. So um, those are things, you know, those are things to keep in, mi uh, keep in mind, but going into it, general health care, deworming, um, appropriate to your area, and good nutrition and good dental care. Okay. Our next question, Dr. Linton, is from Laura in Minnesota, and she says that uh, she always assists with foaling, as in applying gentle pressure um, to pull and support with the contractions. Is there a downside to getting involved with a mare who isn't in trouble? No, there's not. And I'm always close even to my normal falling mares here. I'm always right there. And to me, you know, I can't sometimes have my hands on those front feet, but I'm not doing much, but I, I feel occupied because I'm there and I can see that fall and, you know, work out that it's doing fine. It's blinking and everything. The nostrils are moving as it's coming out. Um, you know, gentle pressure is totally fine. Uh, what I don't like seeing is a lot of, you know, a lot of people on those falls. Um, Normal fallings, the, the main downside is uh, rib fractures that we do see and those kind of forced contractions. And I think a lot of the time when we're really extending those legs out really far, you're putting a lot of you know extension on that fall's back. Uh, and you imagine their, their back is arching as well as you're doing that. So make sure if you're there and you're trying to help with these contractions that you're pulling an archway almost down towards the mare's hocks. Because if you're pulling straight out, if you watch where a mare normally falls, that fall kind of comes out in an arc um, because that's how it comes out you know to get it out that's the ability for it to come out so don't go pulling 
it directly out from the mare because um, it will have troubles getting out there and you'll put more pressure on its back and those ribs. So um, too much pressure um, definitely can um, cause rib fractures, but I see it a lot of normal foldings that get rib fractures for different reasons. So um, yeah, if you're putting it with, with the contractions, um, I think that's totally fine, even on normal mares. Um, but even just being there, sometimes it's almost, you know, you see some of these uh, first-time falling mares that just get tired and that, you know, as they push and have these contractions, the fall goes out and then it slips back in. So sometimes it's kind of keeping a little bit of pressure on those kind of helps those mares once they start getting tired. We have a question from our live audience. Alan wants to know if a foal has a leg back, should you correct that as the foal is, is being born? Yeah, the majority of times that fall won't come out with a leg back and it depends how it's back. So uh, a leg back can be from the, you know, from its, well, you know, the, from the knee, so from the carpus. So if the carpus is flexed, um, if it's just basically, if it's, uh, it depends on how far back and where the, where it's going back at. Um, if it's easily corrected, uh, I think if you identify that, you should call your vet straight away. So they're making their way. If you find it's easy to correct, what you don't want to go in and do is traumatize the mare a lot. Um, you know, they can get tears and things like that. Um, but yeah, th that fold generally won't come out um, if there is a leg back. Um, occasionally they might, it depends if it's really back at the, if it's at the shoulder that it's way back, you may not even be able to reach it. Um, so if it's just, if you can get in there and you can hook your hand under, under that cannon bone or something and bring that leg out, um, there, there may be some reasons for that. And if it's difficult to do that, sometimes we have falls that have, you know, mild to moderate or even severe tendon contracture that they're back because they're contracted. So um, they're the more difficult ones. So my advice is um, if you identify legs back or anything like that, call your vet, get your vet out there, because as we know, you know, we don't have a lot of time for these falling get your vet on the way, then they, and if it's corrected when they come out there, that's totally fine. They can check out if everything, um, I think if I, I probably speak for all veterinarians and saying I would rather be called early at a time where we can help and fix something than, you know, be there too late. Dr. Linton, can you talk to us a little bit about meconium aspiration and the uh, cause for concern with that, um, mm -hmm. with foals? Yeah, so to start with meconium aspiration, um, so for everyone everyone listening, so meconium um, obviously is that, that first, you know, manure that that fall past, the really black kind of firm pellets that, you know, we'll give animus for and things. Occasionally it'll be passed during delivery or even before birth. And the fact that it's passed, if you get a fall that comes out or the fluid is very orange and the, that nice amnion that I spoke about initially come out and it looks very orange and uh, discolored and brown, and the foal is kind of covered in this, you know, brown material. Um, that's an indication there was some kind of fetal distress. So in that case, definitely get your vet out because you want to work out why this foal had some fetal distress. And and foals will often look the best they do when they first come out, and then the next several hours, that's when they'll deteriorate. So um, if there that is the case, definitely have someone out. Um, but when they aspirate that meconium, so um, some of them will aspirate it as they come on out and they'll, you know, suck in that meconium. Meconium itself is technically, it's a sterile kind of production of, uh, it's basically cell, cellular material and things that the foal is, you know, swallowed and digested during, during gestation. Um, and so it shouldn't have a lot of bad bacteria in it. 
but what it does if it gets in the lungs, um, it stops what we call this chemical pneumonitis. So it's really irritating. And so why it's not, it's not technically a bacterial pneumonia, but it's very, very inflammatory to the lungs. The lungs really don't like it, as you can imagine. So you can have falls with very, very strong signs of pneumonia, having trouble breathing, good anti-inflammatories, you know, you're going to want to give them some antibiotics because those lung defenses are really down. And they're very much more prone to um, to bacterial pneumonias. So um, definitely a, um, an indicator that there's something going on um, and that, you know, veterinary um, help is definitely warranted. Okay. Um, our next question is from Brandy in Vacaville, California, and she wants to know if placenta retention is more common in Frisian mares. I did laugh at this one a little bit. Um, so the, the Frisians, um, they have a whole list of things that are very unique to their breed, medical conditions. So um, mm. Frisians themselves, so draft mares in particular, and it's actually an excellent question. So we, there's an area of this that we don't know everything about. So draft breeds in particular have a much higher incidence of retained fetal membranes, so retained placentas. Um, and the research so far has showed that um, oxytocin is that, you know, a, a good, you know, a, a, a something that, you know, a chemical and a, um, a hormone that, you know, those mares will, will have that produces those um, uterine contractions, which is part of the response of getting rid of those, you know, that placenta. They've actually found in draft breeds, their oxytocin receptors, so the, um, the part on the, those, that placenta will identify that oxytocin that the mare is telling, you know, that the mare signaling for that uterus to contract. Um, uh, they're much reduced in draft breeds. So um, there is a thought that they have less oxytocin res respon uh, responsiveness that might cause them to have retained fetal membranes. So that's draft breeds as a, as a whole. Frisians, so they kind of fall under that category. Um, but Frisians, there is another thought. So another reason, another kind of mechanisms, there are a whole bunch of mechanisms that stimulate that those that placenta to let go. Um, and one is um, the immune system. Uh, and so after falling, um, the the immune system actually sees that placenta. So those the 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 there's a maternal part of the placenta and there's a fetal part. Um, and the, the fetal part is really foreign immunologically to the mare. Um, and after falling the mare recognizes that as a foreign object and it's like, you need to leave, you need to get out um, because, you know, that's just what, that, that, otherwise I'm going to set up this affection and a lot of inflammation. Um, Frisian uh, breeds, uh, the Frisian breed, um, it's a much narrower gene pool. And so there's a thought also that genetically, some of those mares don't recognize that placenta as being foreign. And so it doesn't kick it out in time. So there's a couple of different thoughts out there, but it's a, it's a good question and it is it is real. Um, that yeah. is more common in Frisian and it's definitely more common in draft mares for, for different reasons. That's interesting. So when you're talking about the placenta, um, how do you know that the entire placenta has come out of the mare and how soon after birth should you expect that to happen? Yeah, so it should be within three hours. The majority of them will be out in one or two. If it's still all in there and there's only a little bit out at, you know, two and a half hours, um, you know, beyond that time, beyond the three-hour mark, they get set up disease infections, they get prone to get, getting laminitis. So, um, so it should be out within, uh, you know, within three hours is the, is the cutoff. So, 
my rules are the one, two, three of falling. So that fall should be standing in one hour. The fall should be nursing in two hours and those fetal membranes should be out in three hours. So that's kind of my one, two, three rule of falling. Um, and then to work out if it's all there, um, it, it can be hard because you can easily miss a little bit of a tag and sometimes it's may have stood on it um, and it's torn, it can be hard to work if there's a piece. So if you think about how a uterus is, um, the, the confirmation of a uterus, you've got the, the body of the uterus and then you've got these two horns. And so the placenta attaches to that whole uterus. And so it's almost in this almost Y type of shape. But, so when we lay it out, um, and when it comes out, it's in this big blob, right? Um, and those, it comes out kind of turned inside out. Um, and so I lay it out completely. Um, and you can look on the internet of how it should be laid out. I lay it out into an F shape. So you've got the uterine body is kind of the, the stalk of the F. And then the two uterine horns create the two parts of the F. Um, and what you want to make sure is you unfold those uterine horns completely. So they'll be tucked in and it takes, sometimes takes a little bit of time to find exactly where they are and they'll be inside out. You've got to roll them out and make sure the exact, the right, the tip is all there. The most common part for them to retain is actually the non-fetal horn. So the, the foal is majority of the time it's just in one of the horns. And you'll notice the two, the difference in the two horns. The one horn will be much thicker because it had a much stronger blood supply, and that's the horn that the foal in it, foal was in. Much stronger blood supply, and more nutrition going to that uterine horn. The non-fetal horn, so the non-pregnant horn, will be should all be there, um, but it's much thinner, and so it's more prone to tearing them. Uh, and then the tip is usually what what stays behind. Um, and so make sure you fold it out to the very dead end of the tip to see if it's all there. Um, you can get caught out um, very easily. Our next question is from Dr. Espinosa, who's in Peru. Uh, he's a, a practicing vet and he wants to know uh, your thoughts on the Madigan squeeze. Does it work? Uh, is it useful in all cases? And how long do you hold it? So can you explain to us this Madigan squeeze? why it would be used and um, and how it's used? Yeah, so I'm excited that this question came up because it's a very topical, you know, topical area these days. So the Madigan squeeze, um, Dr. Madigan from University of California, um, UC Davis, basically came up with this, this kind of method that you attach these ropes to the foal, put some pressure on it, and it's kind of rebirthing the foal. So these foals that are a little bit on the dummy side, um, the idea, so, there, and I could talk about this for hours, but I'll try and abbreviate it a little bit for time. So there is some substance, and we've found out that there's this kind of neurosteroid, some substance that keeps that fall when it's in the uterus, because you have to wonder, how is that fall quiet when it's in the uterus? Periods of activity, it'll move around a little bit, but mostly it's fairly quiet and sleepy. Something has to happen for that fall to be suddenly awake, up shaking its head, trying to nurse, trying to stand. Something has to happen to trigger that fall to do that. Um, or there must be something there to keep the fold quiet and then to allow the fold to be active once it's formed. And so they've actually found out that there's a, those neurosteroids that, that, that do that. So they're very high in the, when the fold is in the uterus and then they decrease a lot as just after birth. Um, and so one of the thoughts is that's actually the squeezing and the, the, the passing of the fold through that birth canal that does that. Some folds, even though they go through that birthing, um, they'll come out and they're just not quite right. They're what we call these maladjusted foals or more familiarly people will hear them as the, the dummy foals. 
And so the idea of this method is to kind of rebirth these falls, to lower those. And the idea is that they're a little, you know, they're a bit of these dummy falls. They wander around, they're up, they're doing everything right, but they're just like walking into walls, they're suckling on the wall, they don't really care about them there. Um, they're just not quite doing everything right. Um, and so in those cases, they try this, you know, the thought is that they still have this high level of those neurospheroids floating around in their brain that's keeping them from being this active fold that knows where the udder is, that needs to know how to nurse. And so the squeeze method is the idea of putting the ropes around these folds and applying some pressure, um, which then makes a fall actually lay down on its own, um, holding it for about 20 minutes and then releasing it. And often these folds will jump up and start nursing. Um, I've seen it work great, um, but there are some cases that they absolutely won't work on. So a lot of the falls that I see in here are not just those falls that are, you know, just not quite right. They've got infections. They've got a lot of other issues. So it, it won't work on those falls. And there are some falls that you don't want to use it in. So falls that um, have ruptured, uh, sorry, falls with um, fractured ribs. You don't want to be putting these ropes around the ribs. And if anyone's interested, you can definitely Google the Madigan Squeeze Method, and there are a bunch of YouTube videos on it. He explains how it's done. There are a lot of great videos on it. Um, and it, it, it works in some cases. I absolutely think there is a time and a place for it, but there are definitely other cases it doesn't work in. So in some folds that have um, you know, very low white blood cell counts there, have got a bad infection, and there is another reason that that fall's not, not nursing. It's not because they just, a little maladjusted. They haven't made that transition to being a foal from being a fetus. So, um, but there are times where it's contraindicated. So, fractured ribs, um, you know, other kind of congenital abnormalities, um, a foal with respiratory issues, a foal with pneumonia, or things like that. Um, so, I think it is useful in those cases, those kind of dummy foals, to get them started. You can always try it. There's no contraindication, and if it doesn't work, you've got to look for another reason that falls not nursing. Um, uh, some people actually use it for restraint in some falls. Say you've got a fall that needs a leg bandage, you know, in the first three, three days of life, it's got a bit of tendon contracture. It, some people use it as a nice restraint method without using sedations or anything. Because if you watch the videos and you see how sleepy these falls get, and if you keep the pressure on them, they stay down and sleep until you release that pressure. So um, I think there's definitely cases it's useful in. Um, the holding, you know, the pressure is placed for about 20 minutes to doing that rebirthing process. But there are some that definitely, you know, it's, it's not applicable for. That is super interesting. Um, our next question is from our live audience. Uh, you touched earlier on stalls and disinfecting. Um, Alan is in our live audience and he'd like to know what you recommend for products to use and how to disinfect a birthing stall. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of products out there. Uh, bleach, uh, different types of bleach is really a go-to. Um, it'll, you know, it, regular bleach at the right dilution um, will get rid of the most of the bugs. The main thing is get rid of the before you put any kind of chemical on that. Make sure you get all of the bedding and straw out, um, and 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 all of that kind of bloody material that's in there because. That will, you know, that won't allow the bleach to really get down to the, you know, to the root of the problem. So uh, make sure you give it. I basically give them a good scrub first, um, wash them down with just some general soap or even bleach. But make sure then I usually have bleach or Burkon or something like that that I get them to spray on there, leave for 20 minutes, and then come back and do a final wash. So 
it, it, usually I do it in stages. Um, but the first key is really to get the gross debris off, the majority of that gross debris off. Um, otherwise, those disinfectants um, will get inactivated by really a lot of that gross debris, dirt, and a lot of blood kind of products. So give it an initial kind of an initial wash up first, then use your bleach product, let it stick then give that a good scrub with the bleach product on there um, and then just do a final wash off, so. Our next question is from Jessica in Germany and she would like to know how you can evaluate colostrum to make sure that it's going to work for your full. Yeah, so my, um, the easiest way for me um, is using these uh, colostrometers or the refractometers. So uh, the IgG that you're measuring in colostrum is actually a protein. And so if you look up what these refractometers look like, um, you get a tiny bit of colostrum from the mare, you put it in it's only a really, you know, a few drops really, I get a little, you know, a few squirts from either heat, um, put it on this um, refractometer, and then you, you hold it up to the light and you look through, and there's a scale on there. And if it, that's it, it's gotta be a, a one that's used for colostrum. And there's a scale on the side that basically you'll see a, a line that, that that colostrum that you've put on there will make. Um, and then there will be a correlation to if it's um, good quality, if it's poor quality, fair quality, good quality, or very good. The one that I like to use is what we call a BRICS refractometer, and it gives you a percentage that then correlates to um, how many grams per liter of IgG are in that, um, is in that, you know, colostrum. Um, so on the BRICS, it gives you a percentage. So if it's less than 15, it means poor quality. Uh, between 15 to 20% is fair quality, between 20 to 30% is good quality, and anything greater than 30% is very good quality. So um, it, it's very straightforward and very easy to use. Um, if it's a mare that hasn't fall before or had anything suckled, just be careful when you're getting that bit of colostrum um, from her, especially with cold hands or anything, but mm -hmm. just take caution when you're milking her. Um, but if you have one of these refractometers um, available, it's very easy, just a few drops straight on it and then you look through the little glass window um, and shine it up to a light and it's very, it'll be very clear where, where that line is drawn. We have a question from Victoria in Orange, California, and she wants to know if you recommend administering probiotics to a newborn foal. Um, I don't. If it's a healthy newborn foal and you haven't had any problems on the farm with uh, diarrhea and you're, you know, in the foals less than five days of age or, or even older than that, um, or if you've got, uh, you know, a pro if you've got a lot of foals on the farm, um, stocking density, if you've got diarrhea in some foals, uh, you, there may be a time and place for probiotics. It depends on the product. So there are, there are a ton of products that are out there nowadays. Uh, majority of them won't hurt. Uh, they, they will say they probably will hurt your, uh, they may hurt your wallet a little bit because some of them are quite expensive. Um, but in a health Healthy newborn foal in a clean environment um, that has gotten up, has nursed, um, uh, and you know has done all the right things. Um, I I don't say you have to give probiotics, but if there's an issue on the farm with diarrhea or newborn foals or or some issues in that foal in particular, um, I might suggest giving it. Um, you know that we always. The full heat diarrhea we get concerned about, they all go through it majority of the time with differing degrees. Um, sometimes people give probiotics through that. I don't think it hurts. I think the best probiotics for the foal is often you'll see the foal eating the mare's manure. Um, don't 
together fall off from doing that. That is all part of their um, GI adaptation to becoming a foal that can eat other things. So, um, you know, eating the mare's manure, or even a day of age, is a totally very normal thing to do. And it's something that I actually really like to see because it means to me that that foal is a healthy foal and it's now populating its GI tract with everything that it needs to, that, that's going to help it with digestion. Um, we have a question um, about IgG levels in the foals. Do you recommend testing the foals for that? I do. I'm a veterinarian, so yes, I do. Um, you know, gold standard for me is always checking an IgG. Um, I usually check it, uh, depends on where you are. If you're, you know, a vet going out to a farm, doing a 12-hour IgG check on a foal, I think is totally fine. Sometime in the 20, first 24 hours of life, I suggest yes. Um, I think the cost of an IgG in a foal, even if you've got a lot of foals, far outweighs the need to um, then deal with a sick foal when it hasn't had enough immunoglobulin transfer. So um, a sick foal that's got a bad blood infection, a joint infection or something like that, if you can catch them early and get more colostrum in there, or it might indicate that the mare hasn't, didn't have good quality, quality colostrum. So if you get it in a good time frame, then you can supplement, if you have a colostrum bank, you can supplement that foal with other colostrum. Um, but, or give it plasma. And that will absolutely um, even, you know, plasma is a bit more expensive, but it's less expensive than dealing with a sick foal in a few days of age. So my gold standard um, is to do an IgG, but in saying that I have a lot of people out there on, on, on farms and or have one or two foals that they don't measure IgG and everything's just fine. And I think it all comes down to the environment that you're falling in um, uh, and how healthy that mare was, how healthy the foal seems. Um, and if that foal, if the colostrum looks like it's good quality um, and everything's going fine, then I think it's, you know, there are definitely times where people elect not to spend the $50 on the, on the test. Um, but, you know, it, by me, I, I do a lot of preventative medicine um, because I see the, the downsides of not doing the preventative side of it. So for me, doing the IgG um, is really a drop in the bucket um, and the benefit of doing that and having that peace of mind that's got a good level of IgG. Well, we have run out of time, but I do want to sneak one more question in because we did have several people ask about umbilical cords. What recommendations do you have for dealing with the, uh, the umbilical cord? Dipping it, not dipping it? Uh, do you have... Um, something that, that you specifically recommend? Yeah, I'm a dipper, <laughs> if anything. Um, so what I tend to do, um, I use tincture of iodine. You don't want it to be too strong because, you know, there are a lot of product, products like chlorhexidine and things that are too harsh can actually set up a problem. Because um, you imagine that is that there's actually, there are blood vessels that are coming out of that. They were what's supplying the foal's main bloodstream. Um, from the mare. So anything you put on that can definitely affect the foal. So you don't want anything too strong. So I use tincture of iodine. Um, and what I actually do, um, I make sure you don't get any of the foal skin. I just do, I just basically, and I call it painting it because dipping it sounds like you're going to put a whole bunch of it on there. Um, and basically what I get is a clean, I put, always wear gloves because I don't want to be touching, you know, even though, even if you've washed your hands, our own bacteria um, on our own hands that you know is healthy for us to have is not healthy for a foal that doesn't have an immune system. So always wear gloves when you're hand handling the umbilical cord, uh, no matter what. 
um, I use tincture of iodine and then I get a little syringe or something that's very clean to kind of paint that on there. Um, and usually I do it straight after birth. Um, once that falls out, um, I'll do it up two to three times in the first 24 hours. And then the 24 hours out of that, I'll do it twice and then I'll probably stop. Um, but it's a good idea to keep a close eye on that umbilical cord. Um, sometimes falls when they struggle to get up, they'll start bleeding a little bit. A little bit of oozing is not a bad idea. It is nothing bad, but you don't want a lot of bleeding. So, um, but, you know, tincture of iodine, I think it's not, you know, as long as you don't get a lot on the skin and it's not too coarse of a kind of substance that you're using, I think it's fine to use. Okay. Well, thank you for sticking around for a few extra minutes to answer that because I thought that was important to get to because several people had asked about it. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for tonight. Dr. Linton, thank you so much for joining us and offering such great answers to our audience's questions. Great. No, I was very happy to be here. Thank you everyone for listening and it's great. It's an exciting time of year, so I'm happy to have all the questions. So um, yeah, great questions. Everyone, you can listen to this uh, presentation. Again, we'll be archiving it on thehorse.com. We've also shared a resource article. If you're, if you joined us for, via our your browser, uh, our web producer has put up an article to our 10 favorite resources about foaling and neonate care. Um, I hope you can join us next month. We're going to be talking about metabolic diseases. Until then, from all of us here at The Horse, have a great night.